0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies, and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it to your classroom. I am your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. I am recording this intro on the last day of February, and it will launch on the first day of March in 2021. And as you all know, February is Black History Month in the United States, a time to reflect on the complexity of Black history in the United States and to celebrate Black excellence. But social studies teachers in Virginia know that Black history, culture, voices, and stories belong in our classroom every month of the year, not just in February. And that's why we at the Virginia Council for the Social Studies want to embrace anti-racist education and support teachers and students around the state in this movement in their classrooms. So. Today you are going to be hearing the recording of our February Scholars Hour event, Practicing Anti-Racist Education in the Social Studies Classroom, which was just an incredible conversation around teaching hard history, African American histories, and incorporating anti-racist teaching into our social studies curriculums. Uh, We were led in this conversation by historian, author, and expert, Dr. Hassan Jeffries from The Ohio State University. You will hear me introduce Dr. Jeffries formally in just a moment, but I just want to say again that this was one of the highlights of my career to be able to interview him and to have this conversation with him. Dr. Jeffries is someone who not only is incredibly intelligent, but also a gracious and dynamic speaker. And everyone at VCSS is so grateful to him for coming to speak with us for this event. I mentioned this in our last episode, but if you haven't attended any of our Scholars Hour events and are curious about them, they are a live event hosted virtually by VCSS every third Thursday of the month so that teachers across the state can engage in discussions with experts on topics near and dear to us. You can always send me an email or follow VCSS on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get more information about how to attend any of these sessions. Our handle for all of those platforms is V a social studies, all one word. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please like us on iTunes or Spotify and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy today's episode practicing anti-racist education in the social studies classroom with Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Well, it is six o'clock and I know we have people rolling in, but we have a a few little announcements to get started. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and welcome everyone. My name is Sam Futrell. I am a Virginia Council for the Social Studies board member and co-chair of our outreach committee. And I am so pleased to welcome you all to our February Scholars Hour practicing anti-racist education in the social studies classroom. So I'll be moderating tonight's discussion, which, will look a little bit different than our past scholars Hour events and that is because we only have one panelist for tonight Um, and that's just because he is just such an extraordinary speaker and historian that we wanted him to have the entire platform for tonight uh, to lead us in this discussion on a really important and challenging topic uh, anti-racist education and teaching hard history. So before I introduce you, Dr. Jeffries, spoiler alert, our guest is Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Um, (laughs) I'll take a brief moment to let everyone know that the chat is open and you are welcome to engage in discussion there. But of course we ask that you do be mindful of our discussion norms throughout the event. And we'll have uh, one of our board members post those norms again now, just in case you weren't able to review them before. Thanks, Katie. Um, So, yeah, we just ask everybody to be mindful of that, but otherwise, please engage with the chat. Um, And also, we will be wrapping up uh, our formal discussion at about 635, and I will go to audience questions. So, if while Dr. Jeffries and I are speaking, you have a question for him, I encourage you I encourage you to send me a direct message and then I will read off your question to Dr. Jeffries at that time. So at any point in our discussion, if there's something that you want to follow up with or that you want us to engage more on, just feel free to send me that direct message at any given time. So without further ado, our guest tonight is none other than Dr. Hassan Jeffries from The Ohio State University. We could fill up pretty much the entire hour, <laughs> just listing off Dr. Jeffries' accomplishments and contributions to the study of United States history and culture. But among his numerous accolades as a historian are several prominent books on the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement, including In the Shadow of Civil Rights. And Dr. Jeffries, I'm not sure how to pronounce Bloody Lounds. Yeah, okay, Louns. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bloody Lounge, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. He also hosts the podcast Teaching Hard History and many of our VCSS members will remember his moving discussion with teacher Chris Matthews at the 2019 Virginia Council for the Social Studies Conference. So Dr. Jeffries, welcome and thank you so much for being here tonight.
1: Well thank you very much Sam uh, for the warm words of introduction uh, and to all the members of the council uh, for extending the invitation uh, for me to uh, share some thoughts and ideas with you once again. I was saying before we began that 2019 was was just a few days ago, and yet it feels like eons ago, worlds away. So much has changed since then. Uh, but the work continues, uh, new challenges, uh, but we still have the same mission, right? To teach this history, to teach it accurately, to teach it effectively. So thank you so much. I look forward to our conversation, Sam, and then to opening it up to everyone else who has been uh, kind enough to take some time out of their night to uh, to share a few moments with us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The way we have been educating our kids may have changed, but the values are still the same, such a good way to say it. Um, So our topic is anti-racist education in the social studies classroom. And when we were sort of thinking about where to start, I think that it might be helpful to just define anti-racism because that word just carries a lot of weight. And I think it's been misunderstood by a lot of people. So um, Dr. Jeffries, I don't know if you could just maybe provide us with sort of an accessible definition for that and maybe how and why it's important for history teachers, especially to embrace anti-racist education and that teaching of hard history.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it's important. It, it's odd because it's one of those things that is a, that's a negative, right? It's, it's a not to be. So, you know, so in order to define it, I think accurately, and so that we're all on the same page, what are we asking people not to be in the classroom and individually? And that's not to be racist, not to advocate or perpetuate racist ideas and beliefs in the classroom. And 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 you know, on the surface, it's important to say that, you know, while race itself is not real, I mean, race biologically is meaningless, socially meaningful, and and culturally important as well, because we use race as a stand in for cultural ancestry and heritage. Uh, race itself is a fiction, a fabrication, but racism itself is, is very real. Race may not be real, but racism is very real. Uh, and it has, it's not something that has just existed in the past, of course. Uh, it is something that continues to exist today. So we have almost a double whammy. We have the legacies of racist policies and practices that still impact us today. And we have the creation uh, on an ongoing basis of new policies and practices uh, that perpetuate uh, racial inequality. So we're living in a world, uh, unfortunately, where racism is real and it influences and impacts the lives of everybody. Everybody is touched by it. Some are privileged by it. Some are. Uh, discriminated by, right? But everybody's touched by it in some way, shape or form. So when we're thinking about anti-racism, and this is, you know, uh, uh, Ibram Kendi does a wonderful job of sort of saying, or setting this up. Uh, I'm not a big binary person either or, but he makes a compelling argument that you either are racist or you are anti-racist. This is, he's like, there's no in-between. Either you're fully on for the ideology, and this is almost about Martin Luther King, right? With letter from Birmingham jail where he talks about, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the Klan, yeah, but I'm also worried about the white moderate in Birmingham, Alabama, who was saying, you're going too fast, you're pushing too hard, slow down. That's a problem, because in a very real way, you're supporting uh, the infrastructure, uh, you're propping up uh, inequality. And so, Kendi lays this out nicely. He says, you're either racist or anti-racist, there's no in between. If you're silent on the issue, uh, if you say it doesn't really touch you, then you're actually supporting that which perpetuates inequality. So when we think about anti-racism and what that is in general, it is the act and action of actively, a lot of A's in there, the act, action and of actively working against racist ideologies and practices. And this can be, you know, not only in our individual lives, Uh, but certainly in our workspaces. So as educators, uh, particularly those who are teaching history, which is so critically important, we're talking about US history uh, and American history, uh, it is actively making sure that in our instruction that we are identifying those areas uh, where racism uh, crops its head, uh, where it influences and informs historical events, uh, how it it plays out uh, over time, but it also means that it's not just a subject thing, right? We're not just looking at it from uh, as as as, as, dis, as as disconnected scholars, academics in the truest sense of the word. We have to do that. We have to know our materials so we can identify and mm-hmm. the like. But we also have to practice it like in our instruction. So this isn't just about knowing content and being able to identify and teach the content. It is also about how we. It is also about pedagogical engagement. Uh, that is just as important because you can't do one without the other. Like you could be the most anti-racist person in the world but if you don't know the history, well, what good is that doing, right? We need you to, got, you gotta got know the content. But if you know the content but you acting silly in the classroom, you're actually perpetuating and reinforcing that which you should be working against. And so the, the, the definition is simple, don't be racist. Right. But it, it both in practice and in the perpetuation of history, because we know that history uh, has been framed and told in such a way that it actually reinforces those ideologies that are grounded in the belief in white supremacy. So I think the, the definition is simple, but it has these two components. How do you do it? Right. How, how do you practice it? But then also, how do you identify and teach so that you're not reinforcing those elements?
0: Yeah, that I was really, really well said. And I think that one of the things that stood out to me was when you were talking about and referring to Ibram Kendi's uh, definitions is that racism can be both passive and active, according yeah. to Kendi, right? Like, yeah. but then anti-racism is always active. It yeah. is, it is a movement forward against racism. Mm-hmm. And so how do We do that in our classrooms with teaching hard history.
1: Yeah. You know, I think first, I mean, this is where sort of the the pedagogy meets the instruction. I think in order to uh, teach this history, to teach hard history accurately and effectively, you have to be actively, as you point out, Sam, so right, you have to be actively anti-racist in the classroom. And so this is why teaching, and I'll I'll say a little bit more about that in a second, what I mean by that. But this is why teaching these difficult subjects, teaching hard history, teaching American history is different than teaching any other subject, right? Uh, when we think about social sciences or the sciences in like, right? Because it is so deeply personal. You know, when, when you're teaching physics or biology or math, right, I mean, you can say, hey, look, you know, here's this new formula, I need you to, you know, you, you may have learned math this way, but I'm gonna teach you th- to do it this way. And kids are like, oh, okay, that's fine, right? I'm just out of my comfort zone. But when you're teaching, Uh, in Virginia, for example, about the Confederacy, about the Civil War, about slavery, about the the founders, about uh, Jim Crow. That suddenly becomes deeply personal, right? Even for a kid who's in the fourth grade, right? Because they're picking up stuff from their parents. They're picking up stuff from their grandparents. They're picking up these cues and clues from the community. And now you're asking them to do, not just learn something new, you're actually asking them to unlearn something that is deeply personal. And so that we have to be aware of that going in. So before we can even get to the subject matter, we have to have these conversations with our students and create an environment where it is okay to begin this process of learning by unlearning. And one of the ways in which we can do that, so we haven't, we haven't, we haven't talked about anything yet, right? We're still sort of in this process of engagement and building up a space and environment, a culture in our classroom where we're gonna do some unlearning and learning. And I think one of the most important ways to do that, especially for white instructors, especially for white teachers, for white teachers of, 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 uh, who are teaching white students, who are teaching black students, it doesn't matter. But for white teachers, this is especially important for them to share their own journey. We have all, if we're sitting on this Zoom, if we're serious about being anti-racist practitioners, we have all, if, if we've been born in America, if we've lived in America for any period of time, we have all had to do some unlearning. There's all this is, this is all of us. I'm, I'm including myself in, in this group as well. There are always things that we have had to unlearn as it relates to sort of racism and race in American society. And so sharing that, sharing some aspect of that personal journey with your students is so critically important because what it does is it gives them permission to begin to unlearn some stuff, too right it's not just hey she's making me do this or he's making me do this and i'm pushing back it's like look i had to do it too at a different level at a different time but let me tell you what i used to believe what i used to think what i didn't know right as it relates to race and race and maybe about it could be about the president one of the president doesn't matter and you're giving them permission to do the same thing to unlearn something that they had picked up and then you can begin to dive in to those difficult subjects but 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 The almost as a prerequisite is this acknowledgement that this is deeply personal, even for our youngest learners, because we know as well that kids as young as six months old are already able to identify people based upon their race, six months old. So they're already picking up on on, on signals, cues and clues from their parents and their caregivers and taking that with them into the educational learning experience. So there is unlearning that has to be done from day one. And each and every one of our classes, we have to acknowledge that and then begin the process of learning uh, from there.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I mean, history is emotional because we we see ourselves, you know, in the past and in the inherited actions of people that existed around us, you know, and I think that too, you know, even in this conversation tonight, there was discussion among our committee, you know, am I the right, the white person, the white person, the right person to, to <laughs> that was like a Freudian slip for sure. <laughs> am I the right person to moderate this pan this discussion tonight, you know, as a white woman. And, you know, and I think that what we landed on is that, you know, we have to share the burden you know yeah. white teachers have to share that burden and that means unlearning for themselves but also sharing in that journey and being willing to be vulnerable being willing to be honest with our students about what we have experienced and how we are actively growing in our own anti-racist education in our own anti-racist journey
1: yeah as, as teachers we absolutely have to model that we have to model that for our students we can't we, we and, and it it, it, as you said, right, we have to be vulnerable in that sense. And I love that term. I mean, highlight and underscore that. It's a sense we have to be vulnerable. And we are actually taught, we are actually conditioned as teachers not to be vulnerable. We're conditioned as, as teachers to be right, to be the ones who are the, the deciders, the referees. And we never show that vulnerability. But our kids are vulnerable. We're conditioning, we're teaching them to be vulnerable all the time on this issue and and to be silent. And this is the third rail and not to talk about it. And so you can't invite them into the conversation and expect them to be fully within it if you're if the signal that you are giving off is that you're you're disconnected from it. Uh, and, and you're right, I mean, look, 80%, 82% of teachers you know, are, are white and white women, right? I mean, that percentage. So if white women aren't at the table, part of the conversation, then it ain't gonna get done, right? So, mm. so wel- welcome to the club, Sam. We're, we're good. <laughs> Thank
0: you. <laughs> And I think a lot of teachers in Virginia, especially, are going to be faced sort of with some new challenges here um, as they take on teaching the new Virginia African-American history course. And so I kind of wanted to pick your brain about that and maybe some strategies or advice that you can give any teachers who might be taking that on next year. Um, And especially too, just, I mean, you are specializing in the civil rights, the black power movement, like that as well. Like what can we do better in those mm. areas also?
1: Well, I think the first thing is, we know, we know two things, right? Uh, education Weekly and some other organizations and periodicals have, have run these surveys talking specifically around sort of African-American history and these various topics of, of sort of talking and teaching about racism and anti-racist education. And they have found that the vast majority of teachers that they have surveyed, I mean, you're talking about 82, 83, 84% want to do this, like actively want to do this, want to teach this history, want to teach anti-racist curriculum and the like. Eighty-four, And I, it's hard to get 82, 83, 84% of people to agree on anything, right? And, you talk, and they're saying, look, we're in this. But only about 14% feel that they are prepared to do so. So that's that's a... that. that one, we could work with the 85, but then the four or the 82, 83, the 14 means that there's some challenges. So what does that mean? That means basically that we're not ready to do it yet. Right. That, that we're not ready. That one, because we've all come out of the same educational system, that this is not material that has really been taught in any with any great depth or detail to most of us. So there's a there's a knowledge gap. Uh, We're going to have to do some extra learning, some professional development, some deep dive if we want to teach this seriously. And so we're we're not going to get it overnight. But here's the opportunity. I think we go into these classes, and especially since we know in Virginia, you know, you're going to run the pilots in the fall, uh, I believe, with a select few schools, and then it's really going to bridge out and expand out. As it expands out, So you get a little bit of time to really brush up on this. This isn't going to be something that you're able to grasp or teach just in one year, right? It's like, I, I know it all. Like I've been teaching courses on the civil rights movement, African-American history and the like for the last 20 years at Ohio State. And each semester, I'm like, okay, now what am I doing and how am I doing this? And I got to change this up and let me change this. And I, I never felt good about this era. Let me add some stuff here. So it's constantly a learning process. But I think in this in this instance, it is just vitally important, no matter how old the kids are who are coming into the classroom, especially even late elementary. I mean, my third, fourth grade, but even first graders to go into the class and be honest with the kids. Like, look, this is a lot of this is new to me too. We are going to be learning together all the way through. And and, and again, giving them permission to do what? To ask questions. And when they ask you a question about something that we're unfamiliar with, it's like, you know what? That's a great idea. We'll figure that out together. I think the other thing that's gonna be really important going in uh, to teaching this material is the realization that you don't have to teach every little fact about the Black experience, right? Like like that's, it, it's impossible. One, there's not enough time. Two, don't nobody know all that. And three, kids have Google, right? There's no, there's nothing that you can ask them that they couldn't actually Google, right? And find it. It's a, so, so part of what needs to be done as, as you think about, well, how to teach these subjects is where do you want to dig deep, right? Where, what do you want kids to walk away with remembering? Right. And what they remember rarely, they remember a couple of names. They remember they might remember some ideas and they can build off that as we move through Uh, certainly the African-American studies course, I believe, that, which is in the high school level. I mean, that's so you can give a little bit more. But especially for the younger students, as as, as you have the full revision of sort of social studies and the like, what they're going to remember are feelings. They're going to remember moments in class when you talked about something. Right. And that's where you really have to lean in. Right, that those are the periods where you want to identify where we're talking about the founding, where they're talking about the revolutionary, colonial, era, all the way on up through what those moments that they're going to feel something about this past, right? Where they might feel uncomfortable. That's okay. That's something that may stick with them. Like that's what we want to get to. And, and then that's a process. I mean, that's a learning process. You'll figure out, you know what? I thought this was going to get these kids, I thought this was going to move these kids. And it's like, oh no, I was on a, I was completely in a different area. They are over here, you know. I, I, think of it. I tell you know once in a while, I have the occasion to, 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 to tiptoe over to the, to our educational school. I tell the teachers there, they're like, well, what are your strategies going in to teach students, kids, right? And I was like, look, it's psychological warfare, right? I mean, you are trying to get, you got to get inside their head, right? Like you're teaching them content, yes, but you're trying to figure out how to make that content stick. Right. And, and, you, and the only way you can do that is, is if you really know sort of where your students are beginning. What do they know coming in? Right. And this is where, you know, getting students to, to talk about not only what they know, but also what they don't know in the context of race and racism in a world in which we say don't ever talk about it is really hard. It's really difficult. It's really challenging. But that's that's when you got to share that personal story and a personal journey. Right, oh, you wouldn't even believe the stuff I remember or what I thought in this moment and what I learned that becomes critically important. But I think, I think it can be daunting just like learning any new subject or diving in or teaching a new class. I mean, that's a lot of work. I think the, the way to find that sort of comfort in walking through is like, you don't gotta teach everything, right? But, but try to teach some stuff really, really well, right? And then also share with the students that this is a this is a learning process for me too. We're gonna to learn together this year. We're gonna to learn together in this class and we're all going to be better for it uh, at the end of the year or the end of the semester.
0: Yeah, I think that's just really helpful because that is definitely something that I think a lot of us would be tempted to do is to just feel like we need to, you know, know it all before we go into it. But I think, you know, understanding that maybe doing a few things well is better than doing, um, you know, a ton of stuff in a mediocre way because that's a disservice, right, to a community that has already, you know, been sort of blocked out of the educational experience for Mm -hmm. um, students in Virginia for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And man, that statistic really hit me when you said that only 14% of teachers feel prepared to teach, this court, I mean, that is, that's just so sad. <laughs> I think, um, and you know, I really hope that uh, there are going to be some, and maybe that's something that VCSs can work to do as well, is yeah. provide some PD opportunities to really help um, our yeah. teachers out within the Commonwealth. Um, So I know a lot of us, and I'm even looking in the chat now, you know, just integrating the uh, African-American experience into all of our classes, right, is something that we're trying to do all the time and amplifying Black voices throughout history, right? Like, and that's one of the things we said in publicizing this event is like, you know, Black History Month is obviously incredibly important, but, you know, Black history is from the beginning to the end of American yeah. history, right? Like, right. and, you know, it's not just the civil rights movement. Um, it's not just uh, these certain time periods in American history, but I am wondering for the civil rights movement um, and the black power movement, like, what can we do to do better with that? Like, what are some things have you seen, you know, your students coming into college with any gaps that maybe we could do better in filling in, um, yeah. in our classes?
1: Oh, Jesus, the kids don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh my, it's horrible, right? I mean, they know, like, you know, the first day of class, it's like, yeah, well, write down who you know, right? It's like Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. They don't know, they literally don't know anything. Uh, and I, it's not their fault, right? We all came through the same educational system and not that much has changed. And if you reflect, if you're honest and reflect back on what you learned and what you didn't learn, uh, it's very limited. I mean, I had the same thing coming out of New York City public schools. I didn't know much of anything. What what then happens, though, is when I get them and we start talking, not just about, because I can't just, if if I just introduce sort of events and characters, historical figures during this period, civil rights and Black power, and I say, hey, let's talk about the Black Panthers, right? Let me introduce you to Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who they've never heard of. But they have heard vaguely about the Black Panther because they've all watched. Even now, they've all watched Forrest Gump, right? And so there's these and and that scene in Forrest Gump where the you know Forrest and the, and what's what's the what's the, little, what's the little little girlfriend's name? I forget what's her name. I forget
0: her name, Somebody too. Remember. I'm sorry to hey, any Forrest Gump lovers out hey, there. there. Jenny, thank Jenny,
1: you. Thank exactly you, exactly Jenny. Right. Jenny, <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, right? Her and Jenny, <laughs> Jenny takes this is my Black Panther Party, right? And they walk in, and the next thing you know, it's a fight and there's guns and all this other stuff, and he says, sorry for breaking up the Black Panther Party. And that's all they know. That's what they've been introduced. To. That's it. That's the full extent of their knowledge, and interest. not just the Black Panther Party, but to Black power as a whole. So again, you got some unlearning to do. So if I can't just introduce people, and because like, they do have these misperceptions, already in their mind. So when I go in and we start class, I'm like, look, I gotta explain something to you about US history, about American history, about what Jim Crow was, about what segregation was, about the fact that Jim Crow and segregation and racial discrimination didn't just happen below the Mason-Dixon line. Like, y'all in Virginia don't necessarily have that problem, right? I mean, kids would be like, yeah, we know discrimination, racism, that was kind of here, too. In Ohio, oh, my God, these kids in Ohio, right? I mean, these are underground railroad kids, right? Like, oh, we're on the right side of history. We were anti-slavery. I was like, yeah, y'all on the right side of history for the wrong darn reasons, right? I mean, because you, you know, Ohio was like, yeah, we want to keep Black people out of Ohio, right? So we're going to. You know, we're not going to have to promote the institution of slavery here. And so they're coming with a different mentality. Yeah, racism exists, but it always exists down there. So I have to do this whole thing like, nah, yeah, I got to understand. sort the of processes of racial discrimination here in the North. So I spend more time than I would like actually just going back over U.S. history. Right, going back over sort of what is Jim Crow, what's the legacy of slavery? How, how does housing discrimination in the 1930s then lead to residential segregation and all these other things? So I'll spend a couple of weeks on that, just laying the groundwork. And I tell you what happens before we even start talking about black folk in any in, in, in sort of black folk in agency, right? I mean we start talking about resistance and organizing and all this other sort of stuff. Then so I get kids in the first two weeks of class, they're like, oh my God, I didn't know this. How did this, how did I not know this? they wind up going, first two weeks, going through like the five stages of grief, right? That's not true, Dr. Jeffries. That ne- that never happened, right? That never happened. Like, what do you mean that never happened? I'm telling you what happened, right? They go, and then it's like, oh, maybe it did happen. Then they're mad at the teachers, but they ain't mad at me, right? They're, they're like mad at y'all, right? They're mad, <laughs> they're mad at the, the fourth grade teacher for never teaching them about Jim Crow, the, the, the AP government teacher for never talking about lynching. They're like, what do you mean lynching happened? Like, this is a real thing? I'm like, yeah, it ain't that long ago. And their mind is blown. And so- you know, what, so there's some basic US history stuff that they're not getting, that we're brushing over, right? That we're glossing over. So before we even get to the civil rights stuff, because if we just jump in to the civil rights stuff, right? The black power stuff, the organizing stuff, the activism, but they don't understand the context. They don't understand what they're fighting against what they, and what they're fighting for. Then what they're doing makes no sense. It makes no, and they can't appreciate what they're doing and they can't appreciate when they're not doing something. It's like, well, if they couldn't vote, then why why aren't they marching every day to go down to the county courthouse to register to vote? It's like, well, I need to explain to you racial terrorism. right? And that if you showed up at the county courthouse in Virginia or even in Ohio in certain places, you would be killed. right? And so therefore, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It just means you divert your activism and your energy in a different direction. So now in the 1950s, and now you're talking about, you know, kids who are leading school boycotts, right? Why? Because their parents then have frozen out of the voter registration stuff. So di- digging deep on doing some just basic U.S. history stuff that we didn't cover would be great, would save me some time so kids have a better sense. That's that hard history stuff, right? Let's deal with some hard history. So when they come in, at least they have an idea that this is on the table, right? Like this was because, I mean, the first two weeks, I'm like rewriting U.S. history for them. And they're like, oh my, God. And, the, and the poor kids, Sam, let me tell you, the poor kids from like suburban Ohio and rural Ohio, they come to my class, they're like, oh my God, this is, this, this is what is, has what is, what is happened, what has happened? But what I've also learned with my kids, and this is helpful too, with the unlearning process, right? Because I know y'all get it, because I get it and I, and I hear it when I talk to teachers all the time. Like, well, what do I do about parents? Like, if we're talking even about civil rights, right? Like, like all right, you can talk about Martin Luther King, but are y'all really going to talk about the Black Panthers? Are you really going to talk about Malcolm X? Because he was really racist and all this stuff. So these kids are coming in with these ideas. and uh, Preconceived notions. And so what is so very helpful and, and that you will teach them that. Right. Like I, had a, I literally had a kid come in halfway through the class, came down to me and said, you know, Dr. Jeffries, my you know, kid from rural Ohio, said, Dr. Jeffries, my grandmother warned me about you. And I was like, okay, time out. I was like, who's your grandmother? Right. And, and how do I know your grandmother? Right. Like, do we date in college or something like that. He's like, no, no, no. He said, my grandmother, you know, told me before I even got here, you know, about you, these liberal professors, right? Especially the colored ones, right? A few years ago, the color was these liberal professors who were going to try to change the way I think and everything about the world. And I knew he was in the class, not him specifically, but I knew there's a percentage of students who come in the class like that. So what do I use? I can't use my voice because my voice is already tainted in their eyes. Like I got to use primary sources. Like you don't have to hear from me; hear from the people, right? Both on the opposition and the activism, right? And only and after a certain point, then like, oh man, this guy must be, know what he's talking about, right? And I ain't even said anything yet, and then we can begin to do the deeper dive, right? So I think the first thing is before we can even get into the, those, those aspects of African American history that we want our people to uh, want our kids to know, we really got to be serious about what do we what do they know about U.S. history? What do they know about American history? What do they know about the problems of racial discrimination, racial inequality, racism, white supremacy, and the role of racial violence? Once they get that, then we can begin to move in to introduce new actors beyond King and Rosa Parks. We can reimagine. Uh, and give a more accurate portrayal of the Kings and Rosa Parks and the people, that you're gonna have to teach King, you're gonna have to teach Rosa Parks, but just do it accurately. Use them as a point of entry to then talk about other characters, other other actors, other people in history, other organizations, and other places. And I think Sam, I know I talked a long analysis, but this last, so the the last thing I would say is, you can always begin locally, like especially for kids, K through 12, especially in the elementary age and middle school, Beginning locally is so important because they understand the, the sort of world around them. And I guarantee you, in, no matter what county you are in, especially if you're in Virginia, you got some local stuff that you can build around, that you can point to, places that they have been. So start local and then build out. Like, you know, King is kind of a, King, King is hard to connect with for many kids because we haven't frozen, frozen on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Even Rosa Parks, they can't really connect with her, right, because of the way that we have taught her. But they might be able to connect to kids who were boycotting a school. Right. I mean, in, in an area that they weren't to that they that that they're familiar with. Right. Uh, an economic boycott of, of, of downtown stores. I mean, those are the types of things that that they can connect to, that they can see that are tangible. And then you can build out uh, from there.
0: Ah, so many good things. I want to ask you 10 questions just off of that, but we're kind of nearing that time where we're going to go to audience questions. And I, I promise that we will do that. But one of the things that you were saying in there that just really stood out to me is this idea of, of the black community being like actors being these active agents in their own culture, in their own change. And I think that that is something, you know, even when teaching slavery, uh, if you're teaching U.S. history, one, it is so easy, you know, to victimize uh, enslaved people. And of course, they are victims, right, of a terrible oppressive system. But they were also active agents in creating their own culture and and surviving, you know. And there is a book um, by... Blossom Game, I think is his last name, Surviving Slavery, that is really good, that just talks about um, the preservation uh, and the creation of um, Black culture through slavery. So I think that's really important as well. And just before we move to audience questions, you kind of touched on this a little bit. You know, you had your student come in and sort of push back against you because maybe you dated his grandmother through, <laughs> like, or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, you, you had a student push back and you're like, that student's always in my class, which yeah. is terrible. But you mentioned, you know, sticking to those primary sources, reinforcing those. What are other ways that teachers can sort of respond to resistance against anti-racist education?
1: I think I think one of the, one of the, one of the things I do on the first day of class because I know that that kid is in the class, and he literally was a pig farmer. I do not exaggerate. He literally was a pig farmer from Southern Ohio, right? And I know that he is in the class, in each and every one of my classes. First day of class, I tell my students, I'm not here to change anybody's mind. I just want you to have an open mind to what we're going to talk about. First day of class. And and, and I have to to do that because I know that kid is back there. And I know he's coming to the class thinking my sole purpose in life, in addition to dating his grandmother, is to get him to change his mind. And I'm like, I have no desire to do that. Like, you don't have to agree with everything I have to say in this class in order for you to get a good grade. I have no concern about that. I do want you to get an A. I want everybody in my class to get want everybody to do well. I need you to have an open mind to what we're talking about. And then later on, I say, look, discussions that we have, you know what we're gonna do? They're all evidence-based. What's your evidence, right? Because you know, some stuff, especially now where we're leaning, we're in this era of post-truth and people just bringing in stuff and crazy stuff. I'm like, that's an interesting point. What's your evidence? And so we get into, you know, you can do this a little, with high schoolers, you can do this a little bit, even middle schools to a certain extent, younger kids, it becomes a little harder, but in college, for sure, it's, you know, what's your evidence, just give me evidence. So we don't have to argue, right? I just need your evidence, show me evidence, convince me. And that's the other thing I tell my students all the time, especially those who are sort of was like, that's fine, just convince me, right? Or convince your class. I don't think your classmates agree with you, convince your classmates, right? What can you do? Uh, and, and, you know, after a while, you know, you know, again, it's not about necessarily moving people, I like look, I, if you believe what you believe, that's fine. I just need you to believe it based upon facts right? and be able to defend it. Uh, and you know, I've gotten, good, I've gotten good results from approaching it like that. Like we don't run from topics. I'm like, no, 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 we're gonna deal with it all. Uh, but I need you to know as a student that we're dealing with this, that, that it's okay to have your opinions, right? But the opinions have to be based on fact and you gotta bring the evidence to it. And if, and, 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 and if I could just add one more thing, as I was thinking, Sam, what you were talking about, so teaching slavery and, and, and African American agency and Black agency, that's so important. But the way in which we get students to connect to marginalized people, oppressed people, exploited people, enslaved people, is through teaching them resistance, right? The ways in which African Americans resisted. Why? Because we have taught our children to identify with enslavers and not the enslaved right? I mean, that's the President's Day and all this other stuff, right? Our kids will identify with enslavers more readily than they will with the enslaved. So what do we, how do we get them to identify with the enslaved? If we're saying that they're in this sort of victimized position vis-a-vis the larger society, then, and we say, we need you to put yourself in those shoes. Kids are like, well, if I was in those shoes, I'd fight back some way, shape, or form. Resistance is the way they see themselves in the oppressed. So it's like, okay, let's explain me. Let me tell you what resistance then looks like, right? Sometimes it's a rebellion, yeah, but it's not always a rebellion because rebellion is suicide. And as you said, Sam, people were trying to survive. That was the main goal. So resistance is always there. Like, like first day of class, without pointing to anything, I say, listen, one of the themes of this class of the African-American experience, no matter what era I'm talking about is the persistence of resistance. I drill into those kids like no matter what time period you are, you will always have Black folk fighting against uh racism and white supremacy and fighting for justice and equality, period. That is a non-starter. There's never a time where they're not fighting for it. There's never a time where people aren't willing to sacrifice their life in a fight for that. Never. That's the starting point. And, that, and, and we go from there. And so every period we circle back, we circle back, we circle back. And it looks different, right? I mean, sometimes it's, and, and, and you mix it up, right? I mean, sometimes it's you know, it's a cultural expression. It's forming a church. It's forming bonds of family, right? I mean, so it's the obvious, it's, it's the explicit and the implicit, but it is always there. And once kids know, right, they hear me say it enough persistence of resistance, persistence of re- resistance. All you got to do is look for it and you will find it. Then they're able to see the humanity. Then they're able to begin to identify. And it doesn't really matter what the error is, they can see a little bit of themselves, a little bit of that internal fight right that they that they feel that they would have right in the people that we are now talking about mm-hmm. and then that's when we begin to see them acknowledging and recognizing the humanity of those folks mm
0: so powerful so good um let's go to a couple of audience questions if that's okay and if you haven't sent me a message yet in the chat but you have a question for dr jeffries you can just direct message me and i'll be happy to ask your question so jennifer hitchcock has our first questions she says thank you dr jeffries i love your work and your writing and your podcast i work at a stem high school in which i am trying to move the needle for anti-racist education beyond the humanities yeah. do you have have any advice or resources for building institutional skills that could uh that will cross different departments
1: yeah you know I I think the skill set is the same right I mean sort of being uh being open uh about your own personal journey uh being open to where students are right like not assuming where they are not not shutting them down because you're afraid they're going to say something you got to be open to where students are You gotta speak clearly. Uh, You know, language matters, right? If we're talking about in the humanities context, uh, you know, are we talking about slaves? Are we talking about enslaved people? Recognizing that humanity, right? I mean, so language very much matters. I also think that we have to think about not just the practice of being actively anti-racist pedagogically in the classroom, but looking at the ways in which subjects in the STEM, right? In sciences in particular, have reinforced racial inequality, right? I mean, so we've already said, already said at the top of the hour, you know, race itself is, is, is biologically meaningless. Well, how many biology classes, when you start talking about DNA, you're actually gonna take a sidestep and say, hold on, I need y'all to understand, you know, how this has been used to perpetuate racism, right? In the sciences, right? In this the eugenics and the pseudoscience and all. I mean, I mean, so there are ways to talk about, even in the hard sciences, the way the hard sciences have been used uh, to reinforce racism in other areas. And so when they do wind up in the humanities classes, they're able to draw on these experiences, right? From, the, uh, from their sciences. If in that example, you breeze through DNA and the only thing that they get out of DNA is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, well, then you've missed an opportunity for them to make sense and draw the connections to how, this, how pseudoscience then has a real impact On the lives of people and so i think the pedagogical practices are the same but i think strategically you really have to look at your subject and look for those opportunities right where you can take the sciences and connect them to the world in a very real way and the same thing with math right i mean you do it with math all the time you know what 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 um uh uh what kind of what kind of problems are you using right and there's no reason why you can't use real world problems that then can lead to discussions and interpretation of the way in which the society is ordered, right? It doesn't always have to be, you know, you know, Sally and Jim do this and that, right? It's like, well, what's going on in this community, right? And how do we get this? I mean, those, and even just the examples, right? Calculating mortgage rates. And if you buy this house and appreciate, I mean, and then talk about well, housing is so critically important. Right. I mean, if I was a math teacher, every one of my examples would be about housing in some way, shape or form. Right. Because housing is really the center, uh, the, next, the, 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 the access point for opportunity. And so I think you use those. Right. You, you're not teaching anything different. You're just just changing the approach so that kids can see things differently through the subject.
0: Hmm. Excellent, so Chris Trock has another question. Um, and I do believe that there was some chat and um, there was some discussion in the chat with some additional resources um, from what Dr. Jeffries mentioned on uh, expanding to the STEM world as well. Um, but Chris Truck, uh she says, I recently had the question posed to me along the lines of, quote, why do we still have a Black Miss America and Black Entertainment Television and even Black History Month if we no longer have uh maybe racist laws Um, and I had a lot to say and mostly that African-Americans could not participate in nearly every area of society so they created their own and the actions of society have not necessarily caught up to the laws but I want she wants more ammunition for these types of (laughs) questions so so what kind of what kind of things could she put in her pocket for when a student asks this and I definitely have gotten a similar question before so uh, this is very common And I think especially even among um, middle school students.
1: Yeah, I think this. you're right, especially among middle school students, because the question among middle school students, for for many and and I do this, it's like, hey, what are your questions about race and racism? And is racism still real, right? Is racism still here? And that's part of what they're thinking, right? That it's no longer here because they get a lot of signals, ah, race prejudice isn't here, racism isn't here. And if it's not here, then why do you still have these things, right? And those things. Are, are, and I think, I think uh, she answered it actually wonderfully, right? I mean, these are not only legacies, but th- of the past at a time when African-Americans were explicitly excluded you know, from, you know, from colleges, from universities, from schools, from these uh, uh, cultural uh, opportunities, cultural creations, cultural organizations and the like. So black folk created their own. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like the, there's, there's nothing wrong with identifying things around race. The problem comes into play when we discriminate against people on the basis of race, right? So the fact that it exists is not a problem. The fact that it exists is responding to a problem that has persisted and they will continue to be there even if the problem disappears because there's nothing, because we use race as a stand-in for cultural heritage. And so these are expressions as you pointed out of cultural heritage and that's totally fine. Those things should be celebrated ref- outlets for cultural expression. I think it's also important to, to, to remind children or even to point out to them for the first time uh, that in American society, whiteness is still normalized. It's normative. Everything white is still, the, is, is, still the, is still the normative, it's still the baseline, but ain't everybody white. And don't everybody wanna subscribe to that particular standard. And therefore folk have created these outlets of expression uh, so that they reflect. Uh, not only who they are, but also the way in which they experience and walk through the world. But I think, but they've been told that, well, if, if everything that then sort of focuses or revolves around race is wrong, then these should be wrong too. And that's when you sort of pull them back and say, no, 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 there's a difference between sort of forming something white and exclusively white and excluding others to folk coming together and creating something out of necessity, but also to celebrate. And not to exclude, and that's what we see in sort of black programming and black television, uh, and, and these uh, other 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 expressions uh, of black culture and black heritage.
0: Ah. Uh. Exactly. And I think Wesley Hedgepeth, he's another one of our board members, he just put it in the chat too that this is also a reason why clubs and bars still exist for the LGBTQIA community. You know, it's the same reason, you know, providing a safe space, providing a community space for marginalized groups, you know, where these groups have been excluded from in the past, you know, and uh, where they can be celebrated and feel safe, you know, celebrating their culture. And I think too, you know, just uh, there are also still, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Jeffries. Okay, feel free. But I mean, there's still racist laws in the United States. You know, I mean, I, I mean, even with all of the voter suppression that was going on um, in the presidential election, I mean, you know, so there are still racist laws in the United States. Um, So I think including that too, whenever our students ask us that is important.
1: I mean, that's, that's what saying just real quick, I mean, that's where we're talking about that kids, we have to literally tell our kids, tell our students that racism is real, it's still here, right? Like race is a fiction, racism is still here and it manifests itself in these different ways, whether we're talking about even when you said with the laws and voter suppression and school, but then even if we remove, and I mean, we're, we're actually living in a time where we have the best example, right? That and the kids are actually living it, and it's coronavirus, right? Why is coronavirus disproportionately impacting African-Americans and people of color, right? I mean, there's a number of factors, right? Access to healthcare, access to jobs, the kinds of jobs people have, who's labeled an essential worker, who gets to stay at home, who can stay at home. So we know that these are the factors that disproportionately impacted the lives of African-Americans and others and why they have a higher rate of hospitalization and death, right, real world example. But then we also know that the laws governing or the, the practices and policies governing distribution don't say anything about race, right, are non-discriminatory on their surface. And yet those communities that were suffering the most are in fact the communities that are not receiving the vaccine in the highest doses and percentages, right? And so what are we seeing there? Like even colorblindness as an example can have a discriminatory impact because we're not taking seriously or pretending as though race is not informing Uh, the, the, the the problem in the first place. And so I think, uh, you know, our kids have to be aware that even in the absence of explicitly racist language and laws, there can still be this negative and disparate impact that impacts it, that, that does harm uh, to people of color, uh, even when the intent uh, wasn't there, just because of the way we have structured our world.
0: Absolutely. And still, I mean, too, with all of the uh, xenophobic actions towards uh, Asian Americans in response Mm -hmm. to the coronavirus um, pandemic, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's that, like you said, white culture is normalized. And because of that, you know, we have to be able to express that to our students and, you know, express that colorblindness to show them that, you know, colorblindness doesn't exist. Okay. It's, it's like, like it's white normally, yeah. like that's what yeah. colorblindness is. Um, so we have one more question that I'd like to pose to you before we uh, get going here. Um, so Crystal Thompson says, I'm the only African-American on our sixth grade social studies and language arts team. How should I best approach practices for incorporating our rich Black African-American history into an already planned curriculum, Virginia curriculum, for Mm -hmm. our students?
1: Well, first, I think we do, you do, you do, and Crystal, hang in there, girl. You do what what we do in all these subjects, right? It's it's you go through the curriculum and you find these spots that you can not just like, this is not about being additive. Right? It's about incorporating and then using that point of incorporation to tell a fuller story, right? So it's not just, I'm ah, gonna drop in a name here, I'm gonna drop in a name here, drop in a name there. No, no, no. When you begin to, when you begin to introduce, then suddenly you can tell it completely, you can get to the same point, just from a different angle, right? I mean, you can talk about George Washington, right? First president of the United States, right? By telling the story of owner judge, right? Now you're gonna to get to the same place, right? You're still talking about first president of the United States, still talking about everything that he does, but you're also talking about this young African-American child that he has enslaved who decides that she's gonna run away, right? And then is gonna write about it. And he spends time and time again and, 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 you know, a little part of his fortune trying to re-enslave her. You can talk about that. You're still talking about Washington. You're still talking about the constitution. You're still talking about all of that, but you're also talking about freedom. You know, you're recognizing this woman's age, this young girl's agency. And then when she's a woman, and she's being interviewed about her life uh, as an enslaved person under the first president of the United States, and the, and this, this this person asked her, well, you know, well, why on earth would you want to leave, right? Why would you want to run away? I mean, from this great man? And she was like, because I wasn't free. Like, you, what part of that is so difficult for you to understand, right? But again, so you know, it's just about, it, you know, not just adding a name or two, but then saying, well, what can we learn differently about the event, about the person? About the place, about the experience, when we bring these folk in, and so you know, we don't have to re—we don't even have to reimagine what's already there, right? Or we don't have to rewrite what's there. We just got to reimagine the angle uh, of entry, as well as 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 well as how we're going to analyze and tell the story. And so you know, and, and it's also not about parallel curriculums, right? Because that's too much. We be exhausted. Y'all don't get paid enough, right? To come up with a whole new group. no. It's about okay, where can I strategically weave this in? so the kids can get a a fuller story. And I think the same thing applies real quick. I think the same thing applies Sam, as I was saying before about teaching whether that's civil rights or black history, African-American history course. We're still teaching too much content. I I am, especially especially as we get, uh, as kids have more and more access to knowledge, right? I mean, they, they have more access to knowledge than any other time in human history. We are teaching too much content, right? In this instance, I swear less is more. They, in the sense that dig deeper, have them remember. I know you got, I know they got to hit the standards and they got to know some basic, yes, I get that. But where you can, dig deeper, right? Because that's what they will actually remember. When my students leave from Ohio State and I hear from them, you know, for the last 20 years, I you know, something will come up. I got more emails last summer uh, during those protests, right? From kids and what they were saying, they weren't talk, talking to me about constitutional stuff that we learned in class. They were talking about specific classes when they felt something. Like, I don't know if they remember anything else, but they'll tell me, you know, kids are like, I remember that conversation that we had after watching the clips about the four little girls being killed in Birmingham, Alabama, right? I mean, they felt that, they remembered that. And so thinking about, and and you are, especially those who are veteran teachers, you know what moves students, right? You know what they remember and and, and using that as the hook to anchor them, to keep their interest, uh, not just in your class, but beyond, that's what we want. And sometimes, you know, giving a little less uh, in that instance, I think can can pay dividends uh, uh, in, in, in real substantial ways.
0: Mm, absolutely agree. You're getting a lot of snaps in the chat um, <laughs> <laughs> for saying all that. Uh, quality over quantity for sure. Um, Well, everyone who is still on, I want to let you know that we are going to hang on for a minute after we say goodbye to Dr. Jeffries because we do have a raffle that we are doing for you attending tonight. We have three amazing books um, that will help you sort of – inform your own education on anti-racist education and anti-racism and help you along your journey. And one of them is Dr. Jeffries books. Um, So, uh, so hang on for that. Uh, But Dr. Jeffries, we just want to say thank you so much. Uh, This was incredibly just pertinent and powerful. And I think all of us were, you know, enriched and enlightened by having you on tonight. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, Sam, thank you very much for your kind words and for the wonderful way in which you led the discussion. I really appreciate it. And and I look forward to uh, to raising a glass and maybe signing that book, whoever gets it uh, <laughs> at some point uh, next time I come to Virginia when all this when all this madness settles down.
0: Absolutely. I will, we'll just have a whole book signing day for you <laughs> the next we'll time you out. can come to Virginia.
1: We'll all, we'll all hang out together. <laughs> well, look, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And y'all keep up the great work, not only in the council, but everyone, all the teachers, y'all are just doing an amazing job. You know, the people say, oh, Dr. Jefferson, you're a teacher. I'm like, I'm not a teacher. I just pretend. I play teacher. Y'all are real teachers. Y'all are on the front lines. and Y'all are just doing amazing work in, in just an unbelievably challenging environment. So uh, you just really are, uh, y'all are my heroes. So y'all keep up the great work. And however I can be uh, of assistance as you continue this work, just, just, just reach out and I'm there.
0: All right. Thank you, right. Dr. Take Jeffrey. Care, everybody. So see you next time. Okay. Absolutely. Good luck. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Good night. All right, everyone. Um, so we are going to try to do this raffle live. Uh, so you can stay on with us for a few minutes if you would like. And then I think we do have a couple of announcements relating to VCSS from our humble president, uh, Katie Blumquist. Uh, so Katie, how do we want to do our raffle? Do you want...